Hello everybody and welcome into episode number 301 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question is, how do we fight the good fight? So hello everybody, happy Friday to you. Our riddle yesterday was solved by multiple people, well done geniuses. The tale of the tape reveals, however, that Jesse W. was the first to solve the riddle, or at least the first to write in with the answer to the riddle. So, Jesse, if you could email me your physical address, I will send you your prize. And the answer to the riddle is that my son speaks to his Alexa before he goes to bed, setting an alarm for the next day. Well done. WWH also wrote in with a guess and a comment, and he appears to be one of the few that deciphered the hint I gave for the riddle, so I will read his guess and his comment. He writes, As to the riddle, my first thought, knowing your son to be a good and godly lad, was that he is praying. And indeed, that would have been puzzling in 2002 when he was negative two years old. Good guess, correct? But the hot Earl Grey tea makes me think that he's practicing his Jean-Luc Picard, Patrick Stewart, impressions. However, unless he's discovered the series recently, I find that unlikely. I once told him to make it so, number one, and he asked me what that meant. Still, I think I'm going to guess that he has become a retro Trekkie. Also, spoiler, I do happen to know the answer to the Bible question of the day. Paul said if a man will not work, let him not eat, keeping in mind that this was during a period of church persecution when many could not work, and thus to feed those who could but would not was to waste church resources. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, compare 1 Timothy 5.3, where Paul makes a distinction between true widows who have no means of support and those with family who should be caring for them who, who or who live an ungodly lifestyle and whom Paul characterizes as dead while they are alive, i.e. while they are technically without a husband, it is in the sense that the women at the well, uh, the woman at the well had no husband. Excellent insight, WWH, and good guess on the trivia. You got the hint right, though my son has still not yet discovered Star Trek The Next Generation fully, a failure that falls at my feet. Speaking of alliterative phrases that begin with F, today we are talking about fighting the good fight faithfully. Okay, I added that last word, but many Christians have indeed heard of Paul's exhortation to Timothy to fight the good fight. Now, given that Jesus was very clear that we are to turn the other cheek and that we are told to bless those who persecute us and generally just given a very peaceful set of New Testament commands, What does Paul mean by calling Timothy and us to fight the good fight? Well, let's go read our Bible passage, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible, and we'll discuss it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. 
but we know that the law is good provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, and males who have sex with males, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which was entrusted to me. I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight. Fight, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and have shipwrecked the faith. Among them are Hamanaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. So, in considering what it means to fight the good fight, perhaps it would be helpful to make mention of what fighting the bad fight might be, since Paul seems to take pains here to tell us that the particular fight Timothy is called and we are called to fight is a good fight. So consider these passages which actually warn us away from various kinds of fights. 2 Timothy 2, 22 and 24 through 24, flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart but reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know that they breed quarrels and the Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient. Or how about Titus 3, 9 and 10? Avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. How about Romans 13, 13? Let us walk with decency, as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy. Proverbs 20, verse 3, Honor belongs to the person who ends a dispute, but any fool can get himself into a quarrel. Or Proverbs twenty-two ten, Drive out a mocker, and conflict goes to, then quarreling and dishonor will cease. Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Finally, Titus 3.1 and 2, remind the people to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. So, these passages give us a pretty clear picture of who we are not to fight with, people, and specifically people in the church. 
Now, if we're not supposed to fight with people, what kind of fighting are we supposed to do? Because that kind of narrows it down a lot, doesn't it? Now, by and large, I have had the privilege of serving in peaceful and loving churches for the 25 years I have been in ministry. But in the few times I have actually seen church people fighting, arguing, quarreling with each other, I got to tell you, it's been heart-rending, church-hurting, and evangelism-dampening. The word commands us not to fight or quarrel or argue or anything like that, but instead to outdo each other in showing love, honor, respect, and kindness. So fighting the good fight is just not anything at all about fighting people, not even fighting bad people. We get a couple of clues about what fighting the good fight is, however, later in both of these Timothy letters. The first Timothy 6 passage gives us a little hint. And again in 2 Timothy. So 1 Timothy 6, 11, and 12 says, But you, man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you are called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. As 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 12, 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8 says, Paul is talking, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. Now, we also get a clue about fighting the good fight from Jude. He uses the word contend to contend for the faith, but I really think it's so close together in meaning that we can include this in trying to understand what Paul is saying. So Jude 3 and 4 says, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. Now, putting these three passages together, and you know, some others as well, it would seem that there are two main elements to what Paul means by fighting the good fight. Number one, Christians are to persevere in faith, fleeing from sin, pursuing Jesus, taking hold of eternal life, and daily walking in faith, which is just, it means belief in Jesus, the kind of faith belief that leads to action. James 2, 18 through 19 tells us that faith isn't just mere intellectual belief in God, but it is a kind of belief that leads to daily action, daily obedience, daily following of God and daily pursuing of God. So James 2, 18, 19 says, some will say you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one good, even the demons believe, and they shudder. So I believe Paul captures that sense of faith well in his metaphor of running the race. It's a very active metaphor, and fighting the good fight is a very active metaphor. So the second meaning I believe we find in fighting the good fight of the faith, according to Jude and Paul in other places, Fighting the good fight means holding fast to the word of God, not compromising it, not watering it down, not ignoring some parts and embracing others, not teaching different doctrine, but proclaiming the whole counsel of God, like the entire counsel of God, and urging others to do the same thing. We oppose 
false teachings and false teachers with true teachings and true teachers, not attacks, not slander, certainly not fisticuffs, not insults, not snark and sarcasm and all of that kind of stuff. We remember the exhortation we just read, 2 Timothy 2.25, that we're supposed to instruct our opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Look, the bottom line is a Christian can never be a jerk. We can't be a jerk to false teachers. We can't be a jerk to atheists or agnostics or whatever. That's our mission field. We're not allowed to be jerks. We're to be a gentle people, powerful in the word, not powerful in our attacks on people. As Charles Spurgeon has said, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. It's the, the Defending the word of God and proclaiming the truth does not depend on my strength and your strength, my aggressiveness and your aggressiveness, my ability to cut my opponents to shreds with clever word plays and things like that. It doesn't depend on that. The power is not in my ability and in my sharp tongue and in my bold and intimidating uh, demeanor and in my ability to put to stack argument after argument after on argument and my ability to belittle the word of God is not defended by me and my strength it's defended by its strength it's the powerful thing it's like a lion says Spurgeon the word of God doesn't need me to defend it I'm called to proclaim it with gentleness it again I don't put the power behind the word the power is in the word so I believe we have found that fighting the good fight is a metaphor, much like the Underground Railroad, for instance, and the conductor Harriet Tubman. Miss Tubman was not a literal train conductor, and the Underground Railroad was not a literal railroad, nor was it underground. But it functioned like a hidden sort of railway, not a railway, but it functioned like that, that spirited away its passengers, with a quote, under the guidance of the guide, sometimes called a conductor, who knew the paths and ways to lead people from slave states to free states. We don't, in a similar way, metaphorically, we don't literally fight people when we fight the good fight, it's a metaphor, but we Fight the good fight with a daily walking of faith, struggling with sin, wrestling against dark spiritual forces, persevering in life just like a fight, proclaiming the truth and holding fast to us. Now, fortunately for us, it's a faith fight. And the source of our faith is so magnificent and wonderful that we can't help but win. Not because of our strength or the power of our uppercut or whatever, but because of his preserving power and faithful love. So friends listening today, fight the good fight faithfully, fully assured that Jesus will forever preserve us. Amen. Let's continue reading 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. One of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, has died. You know that your servant feared the Lord. Now the creditor is coming to take away my two children as his slaves. Elisha asked her, What can I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? She said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then Elisha said, Go and borrow empty containers from everyone, from all your neighbors. Do not just get a few. Then go in and shut the door behind you and your your sons and pour oil into all these containers. Set the full ones to one side. So she left. After she had shut the door behind her and her sons, they kept bringing her containers and she kept pouring. When they were full, she said to her son, Bring me another container. But he replied, there aren't any more. Then the oil stopped. 
She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debt. You and your sons can live on the rest. One day, Elisha went to Shunem. A prominent woman who lived there persuaded him to eat some food, so whenever he passed by, he stopped there to eat. Then she said to her husband, I know that the one who often passes by here is a holy man of God, so let's make a small room upstairs and put a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp there for him. Whenever he comes, he can stay there. One day he came there and stopped and went to the room upstairs to lie down. He ordered his attendant Gehazi, Gehazi, Call the Shunammite woman. So he called her and she stood before him. Then he said to Gehazi, Say to her, Look, you've gone to all this trouble for us. What can we do for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I'm living among my own people. So he asked, Then what should be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son and her husband is old. Call her, Elisha said. So Gehazi called her and she stood in the doorway. And Elisha said, At this time next year, you will have a son in your arms. Then she said, No, my lord, man of God, do not deceive your servant. The woman conceived and gave birth to a son at the same time the following year as Elisha had promised her. The child grew and one day went out to his father in the harvester. Suddenly he complained to his father, My head, my head. His father told his servant, carry him to his mother. So he picked him up and took him to his mother. The child sat on her lap until noon and then died. Then she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut him in and left. She summoned her husband and said, please send me one of your the servants and one of the donkeys so I can hurry to the man of God and then come back. But he said, why go to him today? It's not a new moon or the Sabbath. She replied, everything is all right. Then she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Hurry, don't slow the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her at a distance, he said to his attendant Gehazi, Look, here's the Shunammite woman. Run out to meet her and ask, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your son all right? And she answered, Everything's all right. When she came up to the man of God at the mountain, she clung to his feet. Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She's in severe anguish, and the Lord has hidden from it from me. He hasn't told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Didn't I say, Do not deceive me? So Elisha said to Gehazi, Tuck your mantle under your belt, take my staff with you, and go. If you meet anyone, don't stop to greet him. And if a man greets you, don't answer him. Then place my staff on the boy's face. The boy's mother said to Elisha, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went ahead of them and placed the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or sign of life. And so he went back to meet Elisha and told him the boy didn't wake up. When Elisha got to the house, he discovered the boy lying dead on his bed. So he went in, closed the door behind the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the boy. He put mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand. While he bent down over him, the boy's flesh became warm. Elisha got up, went into the house, and paced back and forth. Then he went up and bent down over him again. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha called Gehazi and said to him, Call the Shunammite woman. He called her and she came. Then Elisha said, Pick up your son. She came, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. She picked up her son and left. When Elisha returned to Gilgal, there was a famine in the land. The sons of the prophets were sitting at his feet, and he said to his attendant, Put on the large pot and make stew for the sons of the prophets. One went out to the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine from which he gathered as many wild gourds as his garment would hold. Then he came back and cut them up and put them into the pot of stew, but they were unaware of what they were. 
They served some for the men to eat, but when they ate the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there's death in the pot, and they were unable to eat it. Then Elisha said, Go get some meal, and he threw it into the pot and said, Serve it for the people to eat, and there was nothing bad in the pot. A man from Baal Shelishah came to the man of God with a sack full of twenty loaves of barley bread from the first bread of the harvest, and Elisha said, Give it to the people to eat. But Elisha's attendant asked, What? Am I to set twenty loaves before a hundred men? Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said, for this is what the Lord says, they will eat and they will have some left over. So he gave it to them, and as the Lord had promised, they ate and had some left over. Amen. Psalm chapter 116, verse 1, I love the Lord because he has heard my appeal for mercy, because he has turned his ear to me, I will call out to him as long as I live. The ropes of death were wrapped around me, and the torments of Sheol overcame me. I encountered trouble and sorrow, then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is compassionate. The Lord guards the inexperienced. I was helpless, and he saved me. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, Lord, rescued me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I said I am severely oppressed. In my alarm, I said, everyone is a liar. How can I repay the Lord for all the good he has done for me? I will take the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. The death of his faithful ones is valuable in the Lord's sight. Lord, I am indeed your servant. I am your servant, the son of your female servant. You have loosened my bonds. I will offer you a thanksgiving sacrifice and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house within you, Jerusalem. Hallelujah. Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, a vision appeared to me, Daniel after the one that had appeared to me earlier. I saw the vision, and as I watched, I was in the fortress city of Susa in the province of Elam. I saw in the vision that I was beside the Ulal Canal. I looked up and there was a ram standing beside the canal. It had two horns. The two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up last. I saw the ram charging to the west, to the north, and to the south. No animal could stand against him. There was no rescue from his power. He did whatever he wanted and became great. As I was observing, a male goat appeared coming from the west across the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. The goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and rushed at him with savage fury. I saw him approaching the ram and infuriated with him. He struck the ram, breaking his two horns, and the ram was not strong enough to stand against him. The goat threw him to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat acted even more arrogantly, but when he became powerful, the large horn was broken. Four conspicuous horns came up in its place, pointing toward the four winds of heaven. From one of them, a little horn emerged and grew extensively toward the south and the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew as high as the heavenly army, made some of the army and some of the stars fall to the earth and trampled them. It acted arrogantly even against the prince of the heavenly army. It revoked his regular sacrifice and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. In the rebellion, the army was given up together with the regular sacrifice. The horn threw truth to the ground and was successful in what it did. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the speaker, 
How long will the events of this vision last, the regular sacrifice, the rebellion that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and of the army to be trampled? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there stood before me someone who appeared to be a man. I heard a human voice calling from the middle of the Uli, Gabriel, explain the vision to this man. So he approached where I was standing, and when he came near, I was terrified and fell face down. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision refers to the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and made me stand up and said, I am here to tell you what will happen at the conclusion of the time of wrath, because it refers to the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Medea and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes represents the first king. The four horns that took the place of the broken horn represent four kingdoms. They will rise from that nation, but without its power. Near the end of their kingdoms, when the rebels have reached the full measure of their sin, a ruthless king, skilled in intrigue, will come to the throne. His power will be great, but it will not be his own. He will cause outrageous destruction and succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the powerful along with the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper through his cunning and by his influence, and in his own mind he will exalt himself. He will destroy many in a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of princes, yet he will be broken, not by human hands. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. Now you are to seal up the vision because it refers to many days in the future. I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was greatly disturbed by the vision and could not understand it. Well, Daniel, you're not the only one. Friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he give you wisdom and insight and understanding. May he guide you by his word and his spirit. Good day and Godspeed.